Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Danger lurks in the American landscape. No one in their right mind would be out here, which makes it the perfect place to kill someone. Introducing Hot and Deadly from ID, your podcast for classic American true crime served with a side of biscuits and gravy. On each episode, you'll hear some of ID's most shocking stories of murder and betrayal, from the mystery of a preacher shot and killed by a bow and arrow to a former prom queen gone missing and found murdered. Listen to Hot and Deadly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people mourn the tragic death of John Lennon. Witnesses say the gunmen followed the Lennons as they got out of a limousine and walked past the Dakota. Mark David Chapman was an obsessed fan. He carried a copy of Catcher in the Rye. He said, now, whenever anyone thinks of Lennon, they'll think of me. Six years after the murder of John Lennon, the violence of the 80s is still dominating the news. Americans looking for an escape find it in the golden age of television. Family sitcoms like Cosby and Family Ties dominate the ratings. All of America was putting the dishes away and beginning to sit down and watch one of three or four comedy shows on television. The appetite for sitcoms seems boundless, but acting roles are limited. The landscape of TV networks in the 80s was very different. There were only three networks. It was definitely tougher to get work in the 80s for actors. 18-year-old Rebecca Schaefer is one of legions of young actresses struggling to break into Hollywood. She was one of those people who had what I call it. She just had a natural talent. She really shined when you were in a room with her, and she was very present and very focused. Rebecca is born in Eugene, Oregon, the only child of Dana and Benson Schaefer. From a young age, her parents encourage her fearless spirit. Rebecca, from the very beginning, was a quiet, independent person. I used to take her to the playground. She particularly liked to climb the monkey bars, and I remember she climbs all the way to the top, she stands up, she says, I am not afraid. She wasn't afraid to try anything, just like horsebook riding, she just hopped right in. And with that same spirit, she makes the leap into acting. I think it was fifth or sixth grade. A friend said, you know, Rebecca was really very good. She 
starred in Free to Be You and Me. And we said, yes, what? Because Rebecca had just done it and not told us. By the time she turned 17, modeling jobs paved the way for Rebecca to land small acting roles in New York City. She would pound the pavement there and go for auditions. She got a bit part in a soap opera called One Life to Live. On her own in New York, Rebecca easily attracts new friends. Rebecca was that kind of person that if you were stuck with them in an elevator, by the time they came and rescued you, you would uh, have each other's addresses and phone numbers, and you'd be pen pals for years. We met at an audition, and she was darling. She was coming out of the room, kind of stepping over the camera cords and laughing, and, you know, adorable. And then we became fast, very, very close friends. And we'd meet each other for coffee. We'd take yoga classes, we'd go to bookstores and read, we went to movies all the time. Rebecca dreams of someday starring in those movies. So in 1986, after two years of small roles in the Big Apple, she starts taking trips to the mecca for actors, Hollywood. The first time I met Rebecca, she didn't walk. She bounced in like the happiest, cutest ball I'd ever seen. Sue Cameron represents A-list 80s celebrities like Wonder Woman Linda Carter, and now decides to take a chance on Rebecca. It was very clear that Rebecca was going to be a star, and I don't use that word loosely. Casting directors take notice. She quickly lands small television roles, including a bit part in Steven Spielberg's TV series, Amazing Stories, and then an unbelievable opportunity a screen test for a starring role in a new primetime family sitcom. This is really her dream come true. And she goes and she nails the audition. She got the role of a lifetime. Rebecca moves into the big leagues and relocates to Los Angeles for good. This is a game changer. Rebecca co-starring alongside Pam Dauber. Pam Dauber was huge in the 80s. She was coming off of Mork and Mindy. When My Sister Sam premieres in October, it's a breakout hit. And Rebecca is, too. Season one of My Sister Sam put Rebecca on the map. She was the pick-to-click. They got the cover of TV Guide. It was a prestigious thing. You don't put you on the cover of TV Guide if you're not in a hit show. You're a 19-year-old girl, and you're on the cover of Seventeen magazine. Pretty big stuff. I think there was no stopping her. She was going to the top. Even as Rebecca catapults to stardom, she remains grounded. She drove a red truck, a little red truck, and she had roller skates in the back of it. So in some ways, she was just sweet and naive. The focused young actress spends 12-hour days on the set at Warner Brothers Studios. I'd hang around. They'd do retakes and retakes and retakes. But she was actually known as One Shot Schaefer because she never had any trouble learning lines. Rebecca was a different type of young actor because she was interested in the work. In an era of hard-charging, party-going young celebrities like Rob Lowe and Demi Moore, Rebecca is the anti-Brat Packer. Rebecca was never into the party or that lifestyle. There was no need to even say, don't bring drugs around her. She was well-rounded. She sat at home and did crafts. She wrote poetry. 
Rebecca also spends time writing back to her fans. Rebecca got a lot of fan mail, and she would answer all that fan mail herself. She would read the letters to me, and they were wonderful. I love you, will you be my pen pal? That kind of stuff. And I said to her, Rebecca, I need to talk to you a little bit about fan mail. They are not your friends, and fans don't know that. They don't understand that the face in the box isn't coming over to their house. And it can be dangerous if you answer back. And she went, no, no, I love them. They love me. I feel a responsibility. Even a fan that goes so far as to propose marriage gets a response back. He gets a picture back with a nice note on it. It was important to her to have the respect back to the people who showed her respect. One afternoon, while Rebecca's inside the Burbank studio filming My Sister Sam, a stranger appears at the gate, asking to see her. There he met Jack Egger, who was the head security guy. This guy shows up with a teddy bear and chocolate, and he's come all the way from Arizona. And he said that Rebecca wanted to see him because she had answered. He got a letter from her, and he wanted to give her these flowers. And I was there in the trailer, and I said, absolutely not. Send him away. Do not let him anywhere near us. Nowadays, that guard would have been notifying the police, everybody, and it's her mother or father. But this is 1987. Unless fans make overt threats, they're shrugged off. You hear, oh, a fan got on the set and wanted an autograph or wanted to meet somebody. I certainly didn't, before that time, go to any mischievous, scary place. Jack said, well, where are you staying? I'll drive you back to the hotel. He actually drove him. And he went away. And I didn't think anything about it after that. It, we thought it was handled. But the mysterious visitor vows that he will return. Knowing that it's coming is something you can prepare for, do something about. But when you don't, there's nothing you can do. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
danger lurks in the American landscape. No one in their right mind would be out here, which makes it the perfect place to kill someone. Introducing Hot and Deadly from ID, your podcast for classic American true crime served with a side of biscuits and gravy. On each episode, you'll hear some of ID's most shocking stories of murder and betrayal, from the mystery of a preacher shot and killed by a bow and arrow to a former prom queen gone missing and found murdered. Listen to Hot and Deadly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. With a successful season one of My Sister Sam under her belt, Rebecca Schaefer's popularity is steadily growing. Her career was on an upward trajectory. We started finding other jobs for her to do when she wasn't doing My Sister Sam. She did a four-hour miniseries called The Achille Lauro, which she shot in Italy. When My Sister Sam resumed shooting for the second season in 1987, something new enters Rebecca's life. Romance. She met a really nice young man named Brad Silberling. The young actress and the aspiring film director are set up on a blind date. Rebecca has Brad at hello. He just loved her to pieces, just thought the world revolved around her. The attraction is mutual. Brad was, I think, her first big love. They were a darling couple. In the fall, CBS moves My Sister Sam to a new time slot, opposite the NBC hit series The Facts of Life. The network hopes to steal some of that blockbuster's audience. But it can't compete. The ratings started to drop. And nobody really knew why, because we thought it was going to be a show that would last for years and years and years. The show's audience dwindles to one of the lowest on the network. And in 1988, it's canceled. So she was sad. She really enjoyed doing the show. But she didn't let it get her down. You know, she knew there would be something around the corner. It was surprising, but by that time, it didn't matter because Rebecca's career was absolutely launched. Her goal was to be in movies. Soon after My Sister Sam is canceled, Rebecca lands a starring role in the dark comedy Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. Whereas on My Sister Sam, it was a wholesome CBS sitcom, this was a feature with much more edgy take on life. Celebrating her success, Rebecca moves into an apartment in the central L.A. neighborhood called Fairfax. The area where Rebecca lived on Sweetser was a very sought-after area in West Hollywood. There is one minor flaw. That the intercom didn't work in the building. But the last thought in Rebecca's mind is of the danger that lurks outside. On Tuesday, July 18th, 1989, the 21-year-old is scheduled to meet with director Francis Ford Coppola about a role in The Godfather Part Three. Her mind was filled with the potential for the breakthrough moment. This was gonna be it for her. It was a coveted role. It was a buzzed about movie. It was uh, an important audition. She had worked really tirelessly on the audition and had an appointment at Paramount that morning. Rebecca anxiously waits for a script to be delivered in preparation for the 11 a.m. meeting. For Rebecca to be directed by Francis Ford Coppola, that puts the seal of approval on her for the rest of her life. She calls her boyfriend Brad, who just started a job at Universal Pictures, 
and wishes him luck on his new screenplay. Their planned future together is looking bright. Around 10.15, the buzzer rings. The intercom didn't work. So she just went downstairs and ran to the front door to go and get the script. A shot rings out. It sounded like a cannon because it echoed. There's this guy in this yellow shirt running away. We were really surprised when we heard. This just didn't make any sense. Why Rebecca? Rebecca's frightened neighbor, Lynn Marta, calls 911. Marta heard the gunshot. She said it sounded like a cannon. By the time police and an ambulance arrive at 120 North Sweetser Avenue, the shooter is long gone. All the EMS workers see is a bleeding woman in the doorway. They saw her lying there. She fell back and her feet kept the door open. The ambulance rushes Rebecca to the hospital. She's just minutes from Cedars of Sinai Hospital, but unfortunately, she was the victim of a penetrating chest wound, and she was pronounced dead 30 minutes later. The popular 21-year-old actress was killed in front of her home. As the murder hits the airwaves, it moves beyond Los Angeles fast. I was in Portland when it happened, and my best friend who taught at Portland State University where I was told me. I ran out screaming, he drove me back to our place. By the time he pulls up to his house, his wife has already heard. Dana cried a lot. I cried. I've never felt pain like that. I mean, I'm not talking physical pain. It was horrible. Horrible. The distraught parents hope to find out more once they arrive in L.A. We saw her there in the morgue. I saw Rebecca lying there, and it was both Rebecca and not Rebecca. You can't imagine the horror. As police process the scene, there are no obvious clues as to who murdered the popular 21-year-old actress. It's not known why she opened the door or if she knew the person who shot her. They didn't have the gun, so no fingerprints that they knew of. Back in 89, there were no computers really that police were using, so it was difficult to communicate with other police agencies. Investigators questioned neighbors, hoping to find out more. Several of them had said they had seen the man kind of lurking around the apartment all day, kind of fidgeting, uh, nervous. A frightened neighbor who didn't want to be seen said her husband spotted a suspicious man near Schaefer's building. He was coming from Beverly, and he was on the other side of the street. Within hours, investigators release a detailed description of the shooter. The suspect is described as a white male. Uh, approximately uh, 20 to 30 years old, between 5'7 and 6 feet tall, medium build. And by evening, one story dominates the 6 o'clock news. There was a gunshot before that, and a scream before that. The woman was dead, shot, 
inside of the front door. I think everyone was shocked. I remember it being a huge story in the media. It was the top of every newscast. It was front page. It was very shocking. The murder absolutely put Rebecca in a huge spotlight. It wasn't the spotlight she was supposed to have. I was sitting literally in the office when we spoke with the district attorney's office. Marsha Clark, who will later gain fame for prosecuting O.J. Simpson in 1995, takes on the Schaefer murder case shortly after the actress is shot dead. We were working shoulder to shoulder with the detectives right from the very start. As in any investigation, police are also exploring those closest to Rebecca, including her boyfriend, Brad Silberling. Not right now. I'm sorry. Brad is inconsolable. Brad was very, very destroyed by this, very upset by the murder. Brad isn't a suspect, but Marsha Clark meets with him to see what he knows. Very helpful to me. He was one of the people I asked about her habits and would she have gone to the door and what, what did she do when people rang the buzzer? It was a mystery. Who killed Rebecca Schaefer? The police really didn't have a clue. As Marsha Clark works with detectives, they find a curious connection. The case is eerily reminiscent of one seven years earlier when another actress was attacked. He shows up at her house. He's a man with a violent criminal record. The red flags were all there. Actress Teresa Saldana was stabbed in front of her West Hollywood residence in broad daylight. Just seven years earlier, Teresa Saldana, star of the film Raging Bull, was viciously attacked in front of her West Hollywood home assaulted on the street by Arthur Jackson. Her attacker reportedly obtained Saldana's home address through a private detective. Miraculously, Saldana survives. I'm in a good deal of pain, but I'm happy I'm alive. Teresa Saldana, John Lennon, and President Reagan. All of these people, the wall was down. These people were just sitting targets. I was aware of stalking as a potential problem for celebrities. I did not connect that to Rebecca. But the Los Angeles Police Department is about to make that connection. The morning after the murder, an unexpected break from 400 miles away. The information came out on the police radio. Tucson, Arizona police officer Paul Hallams receives an unusual call. Some citizens that they said there was a guy acting strangely on the freeway near downtown Tucson. Police had found him running through traffic. He was screaming that he'd killed Rebecca Schaefer. When Hallams arrives, police have managed to get the man off the road. People actually thought he might be suicidal. We took him downtown to the main police station. The man tells police his name is Robert John Bardo. He was seen very positive and uh, a loner. He's just not like a normal person. And he can't stop talking about the fact that he just killed the actress, Rebecca Schaefer. The Arizona State Police took a statement from him. In his confession, he said, I went to the door, I didn't expect to do anything. I don't know why I had the gun, but I was holding it. And then she knocked me. And he made it sound like it was an, an accident. Hallams had seen the news reports about Rebecca's death. Could it be that a delusional Bardo had also heard about the murder, but didn't actually commit it? Police will need evidence to verify Bardo's story. 
We started making phone calls to Los Angeles uh, to find out more about the details. Tucson police immediately faxed Bardo's picture to detectives in Los Angeles. They show it to Rebecca's neighbors. There were witnesses who are able to identify him because they saw him walking away. In his confession to Officer Hallams, Bardo also reveals that he left some items on a rooftop near Rebecca's home during his escape. Following that lead, police in LA recover the yellow shirt, a gun holster, and the book Catcher in the Rye. Los Angeles Assistant DA Marsha Clark moves quickly to arrest Bardo for the murder of Rebecca Schaefer. I sent the detectives out immediately on an immediate flight back to Arizona to pick him up. We had to be quiet about it because there was already a great deal of press. Los Angeles police officers flew to Tucson last night and brought back Robert Bardo. What does this mean for your case then against Mr. Bardo? It means that it can proceed expeditiously as it should. We had a confession, but very often confessions don't take you all the way to proving the crime you need to prove. Bardo claims killing Rebecca was an accident. Clark's challenge is to find evidence of murderous intent. That this was actually a premeditated act and that it was actually done by means of ambush. Soon, police search the home Bardo shares with his parents. We looked up in the attic in the garage and found a pretty good sized cardboard box full of information about her. Newspaper clippings, magazine clippings, and such. As police sift through the papers, they uncover a pile of disturbing, rage-filled letters that Bardo wrote to Rebecca. The threatening letters were ones that he kept. These letters stayed in his attic. They talked about her having a hole in her soul and all these horrible things. They were very dark. Detectives learn Bardo has a troubled background has a hard time holding down a job as a janitor at a jack-in-the-box. Was hospitalized two times for mental illness. In 1985, Bardo would turn his attentions to a young pop singer sensation of the 80s named Debbie Gibson. Bardo came to New York City to try to track down Debbie Gibson. And that's when he visited the Dakota where John Lennon was killed by Mark David Chapman. Bardo identifies with Chapman's feelings of isolation and inadequacy and is impressed by his newfound celebrity. You have a man who's a total loser, and now all of a sudden, he's somebody. And he begins to think about how Chapman carried a copy of Catcher in the Rye. A book that tells the tale of a depressed, alienated, angry young man. On a fall evening in 1986, Robert John Bardo finds Rebecca Schaefer. He sees her on his television set, and my sister Sam. He believed that they had some kind of a connection, that, you know, she could see him from the TV set. He started writing to her, believing that they had this relationship. Clark discovers the content of the letters Bardo had sent to Rebecca were harmless. It was about um, ecology, preserving the earth, and that sort of thing. She believes the fact that Bardo sent Rebecca friendly letters, but kept the angry ones, shows intent. Those letters were extremely important at trial because they showed premeditation, but he had the control not to send them to her, not to warn her of what he was planning to do. In October of 1989, three months after Rebecca's senseless death, her former castmates from My Sister Sam put out a public announcement against handgun violence. 
You know, everybody has such pain and anger and rage over this. You either become more hateful and talk about how screwed up the world is, or you do something to try to change it, and we're doing something to try to change it. Rebecca's parents also speak out. She was our only child, and, you know, it's not something that you can fix. It's always going to be this way, and I'm missing her so terribly. The horror seeps into every cell of your being. The grief was overwhelming. As the murder case against Robert John Bardo prepares for trial, the story of Rebecca's tragic murder and details of her stalking consume the media. Hello and welcome, I'm Perry Nolan. I was there at Hard Copy, a new syndicated show. It sort of elevated how important it was in people's minds to know about celebrities. All the major news stations, newspapers, and magazines pick up the story. Front page, cover of People, I think it shocks people to the core. It feels like it's happened to somebody you really know, and so it has a much greater impact on you. And it's all a warm-up to the main event. It's been two years since the murder of Rebecca Schaefer. It's taken that long to collect all the evidence and complete psychological evaluations. Both sides agreed to a bench trial, a trial by judge, with no jury. Bardo's team goes for the insanity defense, while the prosecution seeks to prove premeditation. Whether or not Bardo was found lying in wait for the purpose of killing her, that was where the fight was. The defendant is now present. After all this time, the details of Bardo's crime will finally be revealed. The trial of the year begins in the Los Angeles County Courthouse. In meticulous detail, Marsha Clark lays out her case. In 1987, Bardo received a letter from Rebecca. One of the early times that he wrote to her, she wrote back. And she was sent a postcard saying, thank you very much for your letter. This is one of the most real and genuine letters I've had. Now, a normal person getting that response feels great. An abnormal person takes it to the next level. He went to Warner Brothers to try and find her. Imagining meeting Rebecca Schaefer and the two of them having some thing together. Bardo was devastated, but he didn't give up hope that someday he would meet and win over the object of his delusional infatuation. A year after My Sister Sam ended its run, at his home in Arizona, Bardo eagerly awaited seeing his wholesome Rebecca in a new film, Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. She didn't have to do any love scenes on My Sister Sam. This was a different sort of movie. My idea of taking a risk is losing my birth control pills or or shopping at sex without a sale. As Bardo watched, his initial excitement turned into enraged disappointment. He felt so betrayed. Her film, Class Struggles of Beverly Hills, was a tipping point for this disturbed young man. And that didn't fit the image that he had of her. When he saw her do the love scene, he wrote the letter that threatened her, that talked about her having a hole in her soul. And he decided that he was going to take her life. Bardo's horrific plan was riddled with copycat elements that he gleaned from the sick and troubled stalkers elevated to fame earlier that decade. He identified with these people. 
like Arthur Jackson, Mark David Chapman, and wanted to follow in their lead. Following in Jackson's diabolical footsteps, Bardo hired a private detective who found out where Rebecca lived through the California Department of Motor Vehicles. He charges him $250. The minimum wage back then was $4.25. That means that Robert Bardo had to work a week and a half all day, every day, mopping floors just to get Rebecca Schaefer's address. That's how obsessed he was. This time, when Bardo went to California to meet his unrequited love interest, he was armed with information and a gun. The gun was bought for him in Arizona by his brother. Bardo gave him the money. They actually went to the gun shop together. No more stuffed bear, no more candy, no more flowers. He's serious this time. He takes off for Los Angeles again. On Tuesday, July 18th, 1989, 9.15 a.m., Robert Bardo shows up at Rebecca's doorstep and presses the buzzer. Rebecca coming to the door really did surprise Bardo. Shocked and starstruck, Bardo tells Rebecca he's her biggest fan. And there stood Robert Bardo with the glossy picture that he had been sent several years before. He asked for an autograph. Rebecca complies. And then said, I'm sorry, I have to go get ready and close the door. Now that was the final act of rejection for him. And he goes off and he begins to brood. He actually called his sister and told his sister he was a block and a half away from Rebecca Schaefer's apartment. Bardo tells his sister Arlene that he's going to do his mission. At the time, Arlene doesn't realize he's dead serious. He goes back again to Rebecca Schaefer's and he rings her up. He had the gun behind his back. That showed lying in wait. That showed he was taking her by ambush. She comes down to the door again. She opened it and without saying a word, he shot her once through the heart. And then he describes how she looked at him. In a chilling taped interview, Bardo details his love-hate obsession with the actress and reenacts the shooting like a gunslinger in a Western movie. This. The celebrity nature of it, the fame, the going back to Chapman's comment about whenever anybody thinks of, of Lennon, they'll think of me. Clark makes the case that the disturbing unsent letters that Bardo hid in his attic are proof that he knew right from wrong. Had he sent them, certainly she would have known to at least be wary of someone coming to her door. Bardo never takes the stand. After a month-long trial, it's the moment Rebecca's fans, friends, and family have been waiting for. I find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder, uh, both as premeditated and lying in wait. On December 20th, 1991, Bardo learns his fate. 
Defendant is sentenced to the state prison for a period of life without possibility of parole. We sat through the trial phase, we sat through the sentencing phase. I was so emotionally barraged that it was just numbness and wide-eyedness, anger. Although the trial was grueling, Rebecca's parents feel justice has been served, but that won't bring their daughter back. I miss her every day. There isn't a day that I don't think of the sorts of things that we did together. I will never forget it. It's imprinted in my mind. How could anybody take this beautiful, sweet young lady who was so kind, who would never hurt anybody, who would give somebody the shirt off her back? The loss of that little angel is something from which you do not recover. If there's any silver lining to be found in a tragedy like this, it is that stalking laws were enacted as a result of what happened to her. All of us are safer. As the 80s come to a close, Rebecca's tragic death results in actions intended to make the following decades less dangerous. In 1990, California adopts the first ever anti-stalking bill. Today, every state and the federal government have a similar law. When we return to Portland, my wife co-founded Oregonians Against Gun Violence, which is still continuing to this day. The Schaefers have not let Robert Bardo rob them of their ability to have Rebecca remain in their lives. My wife performed a show as part of a play festival in Portland. People loved it. It's about her relationship with Rebecca. So you go forward, and part of my goal for this interview is keep Rebecca's memory alive. <laughs>